humans, they have this sparse attention. We can remember things from childhood. How are we able to do so? How are we able to do credit assignment over extremely long timescales? So we must have sparse attention into the past or something like that. We found a way to basically use those theorems and develop a screening mechanism where we basically go from a quadratic computational complexity of self-attention into linear computational complexity, where we consider a fixed time horizon where we compute some type of relevancy score for a given state. And then we dis decide by a simple heuristic whether we should keep this state in memory or not, but over a very fixed time horizon. In hindsight, it actually resembles the process of memory consolidation, which is the transfer of uh, memory tokens from short-term to long-term memory. And then the short time window where we compute this relevancy score is actually the analogy to the short-term memory, basically. And then the, the long memory is what we store the thing in. It, ge it gives it a little bit like an intuitive uh, analogy to what the brain is doing. Hey there, I'm your host, Kanjun, and we are Generally Intelligent an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. Giancarlo Kurg is a PhD student under Yasho Bengio and Guillaume Lejoie at Mila and he did his master's at the University of Cambridge in pure mathematics. He works on out-of-distribution generalization, modularity, and compositionality in memory augmented neural networks, which are all topics we'll be covering in this conversation. Welcome, Giancarlo. It's really good to have you. So we always start with, tell us how did you develop your initial research interests and how have those evolved over time? I come from mathematics. Well, as a teenager already, I did math Olympiads and that was my passion. The choice to study math was quite natural. It was an extension of that. I was always a problem solver. As I went into my master's, I realized that pure math is very hermetic in some sense. The people that do pure math oftentimes, I feel like they have a little bit of an ivory tower taste. I was looking around to find something that is more applied and more in touch with the real world. And that was back in 2012, roughly. So I actually did two masters in pure math after figuring out that I didn't want to do pure math anymore. For a while, I was just not sure what I should do. Well, first I traveled around the world for six months and then I worked in a bunch of startups and in marketing and then slowly but surely I gravitated towards data analysis, data science, and then eventually machine learning. And that was around the time when machine learning became really popular, 2013, 14. I knew back then that this is why this is going to be the future because of the increasing demands uh, in the, on the job market. And so I pivoted and I aligned myself with eventually deep learning and all this. Initially, I was doing some research projects in statistical learning theory. In Berlin, I was doing that at the university for a few months. And then after that, I applied for internships in the US. And so I started as doing deep learning for cancer immunotherapy. I started my PhD in Montreal with Yosho Benjo in 2017. I, I just had no clue what exactly I wanted to do. I just felt from my industry experience that it was absolutely crucial to have some practical deep learning experience because I felt like that was the major bottleneck to my productivity in industry and also just solving machine learning problems in general. I felt like there was a lot of these cooking recipes and little tricks that one has to know. And if you don't know them, you can spend a lot of time just exploring a, a bunch of stuff. I felt like that was the right thing to do to just go back to academia and, and do a PhD in deep learning and to learn all the tricks of the trade, basically. Eventually, I also started to understand that I might not necessarily be so interested in the super practical stuff, but rather sort of understand deep learning from a more principled point of view. 
I eventually gravitated towards dynamical systems and understanding how can I basically combine my mathematical knowledge from before into deep learning and have a more slightly rigorous understanding of what is going on. That, that was the starting point from where it all developed into what I'm doing right now, which I'm looking at memory augmented neural networks. I look at how well gradients propagate in, in recurrent neural networks, in self-template recurrent neural networks, which is the paper that I published. Recently, I was also very interested in out-of-distribution generalization, modularity, compositionality, and these things. Absolutely crucial to the field of deep learning. I'm working really hard on the next paper, which just missed the deadline for ICML, but uh, hopefully I'm going to make it from Europe. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about is what drew you to Yashua's lab in the first place? I was in New York City at this lab doing, you know, cancer research. I basically thought I would stay there for some reason. They were doing some changes and they basically told me that I, I would have to reapply somewhere else. And yeah, I was considering to go back to academia actually anyway. So since they had a really good connection to Mila or Yoshua Benju, and they just encouraged me to reapply there, they had already an ongoing project and then I got accepted. And you said you started out being interested in dynamical systems. Basically, I'm being co-supervised by Guillaume Lajoie, who's a neuroscientist and dynamical systems guy, also in Montreal. In Canada, you usually have four to five years, but the first year courses, a little bit like in the US, but less long. So you have these courses. And so initially I did just did all these courses and then I looked around and there was, uh, there was Guillaume who also taught this class on dynamical systems. And that's how I got interested in it. Because I see there is a connection between the math that I know, the thing that I'm doing right now, which is deep learning. I felt like the field was lacking a little bit more of a mathematical understanding. A lot of people are just running a lot of random experiments and there's a lot of hyperparameter tuning and sometimes you just don't really have a feeling of what is going on. You just try blind what works. And there's also this inflation of papers. Sometimes I feel like a lack of structural understanding to certain things. It definitely needs more rigor in some aspects and also the culture of mathematics. Sometimes people were thinking of mathematics as, as almost useless. We need rigor, we need math in deep learning. And it's just very hard to apply sometimes because you don't really know what the gradient is doing. But making an effort to incorporate mathematics, I, will, I think it will have great benefits to deep learning. Your most recent paper is a pretty good evidence towards that, right? The math isn't super amazingly sophisticated or impossible, and yet it points to like a really good idea, basically. <laughs> It allowed an application uh, of mathematics to deep learning because sometimes it's not actually super straightforward how to apply a theory of deep learning because uncertainty that you have, you don't know where the gradient is going. Here I was basically just calculating the gradient in great depth <laughs> and then just proving that in some cases you can say some things about the gradient and I figured out these theorems. Is that actually the origin behind this most recent Aleros paper? Was coming at it from just proving random stuff about the gradient and then... The paper was Joshua's idea. He had this idea of proving that we mitigate gradient vanishing in self-attentive recurrent neural networks. And so he just asked me, can you prove it? I've had a few attempts at the proof and then eventually I got it. There were some minor things initially that I was not so sure about, but eventually I think I, I got it. Eventually we were just looking for a practical application of it. I mean, it's just supposed to provide a guarantee that of something that I think was common knowledge that if you have self-attention that you would somehow mitigate gradient vanishing. But having a clear, rigorous understanding of maybe all the edge cases and when does it break down and how can we sparsify self-attention and to what extent and, and how so that the gradient propagation is still beneficial. From there, we thought about, okay, how can we illustrate this with some practical algorithms? How can we make use of this? 
it's not like a paper where you have uh, a state-of-the-art result, as in a new method, but it's the other way around, like constructed the theory first for a whole family of methods. And then we sort of uh, gave an example of a method where we prove that we have the desired properties and we can now scale for really long sequences. But it's not supposed to be a, a super fancy state-of-the-art thing. It, it turned out to give some really good results, actually, in some tasks. For people who are listening who might not have read the paper, uh, the title is Untangling Trade-Offs Between Recurrence and Self-Attention in Neural Networks. Do you want to give maybe a few sentence description or overview of what the main idea is and the main takeaway and some of the parts of the paper, just so people are on, on the same page as the rest of us who have read it? Recurrent neural networks, they suffer from the gradient vanishing problem. What I proved in the paper is that if you have a self attentive recurrent neural network, uh, that you would mitigate gradient vanishing. And then since you have a computational bottleneck of OT squared, quadratic computational bottleneck, whenever you use self-attention, the question is, on the one hand, you have these great gradient propagation properties, but you cannot really harness them. You have this bottleneck of computational complexity. So you could potentially scale, but you effectively can't because you can scale to some extent, but not really long by some other cognitive science motivations and inspiration from, from neuroscience. It's like, well, humans, they also have this sparse attention. We can remember things from childhood. How are we able to do so? How are we able to do credit assignment over extremely long timescales? So we must have sparse attention into the past or something like that. How can we implement that in such a way that we have some type of computational effective way to deal with attention and at the same time also get this sparsity slash this gradient propagation. So. On the one hand, we have the gradient propagation properties. We don't vanish. And then on the other side, we have the computational bottleneck. Uh, we wanted to have the best of both worlds, meaning we, we want to get rid of the computational bottleneck and we want to maintain the gradient propagation properties. We found a way to basically use those theorems. I found these upper bounds and guarantees for gradient propagation and develop a screening mechanism where we basically go from a quadratic computational complexity of self-attention into linear computational complexity, where we consider a fixed time horizon where we compute some type of relevancy score for a given state. And then we dis decide by a simple heuristic whether we should keep this state in memory or not, but over a very fixed time horizon. So uh, the funny thing now is that in hindsight, it actually resembles the process of memory consolidation, which is the transfer of uh, memory tokens from short-term to long-term memory. And then the short time window where we compute relevancy or the, this relevancy score, an analogy to the short-term memory, basically. And then the, the long memory is what we store the thing in. So it's thing to memory, that's the long-term memory. And then we use the short-term memory to compute relevancy. And it, get, it gives it a little bit like an intuitive uh, analogy to what the brain is doing. But of, of course, this is a justification of, of anything. Yeah, It's really interesting that you came up with it first and then you realized the connection to memory consolidation. I would have imagined that it happened the other way around. Mm, it's a nice story to tell, but in, in actuality, it happened the other way around. Like I first proved it. <laughs> then I came up with the method and then I realized that it was uh, an analogy to memory consolidation. After realizing that connection, did you go and learn more about memory consolidation or how similar is it? What are similarities and differences? I read a bunch of neuroscience papers. Some of them were really technical and I have to admit I did not understand so much, but I understand a little bit what's going on and it would definitely be interesting to understand whether the brain has some type of saliency detection slash screening mechanism. What is the kind of function that the brain uses to screen out events that are not relevant? One thing we know pro probably is emotional saliency, so things that had an emotional impact to us. But I don't think this is the only solution. So probably there's other solutions. Probably there's other, the combination of multiple things, most likely. One thing that I want to investigate at some point is, can we actually meta-learn this screening heuristic? 
So can we actually come up with a meta-learning algorithm to this uh, mechanism of putting something into memory? You can view this as a policy and then can you actually meta-learn this, this policy in some sense? I think that was part of what was marked as future work of the paper is how exactly does this consolidation can you train it end to end or is there, because it seems the way we did it, it's very much a heuristic and it's very rich in some sense. And it's very well to settings where you have a sparse setup from the get-go. You just have a few characters to keep in memory and then it just seems to work. But the real world is not necessarily a toy task. So how can we extend that idea to, to the real world? And it might give rise to interesting methods, but you need to find the right tweak to it. Did you guys try this approach on other sort of non-toy tasks as well, or things that didn't end up making it into the paper? Uh, we, we're still doing it actually, but uh, projects are taking over and give uh, a lot of exciting results too. I, I gave priority to this other project first, but we'll definitely be interested uh, to keep on working on this. How do you feel about the approach now? Now that you developed the method and you've realized it has some similarities to memory consolidation, do you feel the general principle is fairly generalizable or do you feel like there's some stuff that's brittle about it? Since we're talking about a vanilla RNN plus self-attention or vanilla plus self-attention, I feel like in general, these methods, they can't necessarily generalize very well because of the lacking modularity or compositionality. That's something that the field needs more of. I think, you know, we have seen great papers like RIMS and BRIMS and SCOF, all these papers. The basic idea is that you factorize knowledge in a specific way. You break it down into different modules or something like that. And then since you have these different modules, you can recombine them flexibly so you don't mess up the whole model. But if something in the into input distribution changes, it doesn't affect everything. It just affects maybe a tiny part of, of the whole structure because it just one single module or something like that. We're breaking knowledge into different pieces that can be flexibly recombined in changing environments the pieces stored that determined as relevant and then stored into long-term memory, quote unquote, are, can then be used in different circumstances? Yeah. So the point was, we just have a, a, a general connectivity matrix. We don't have any modules that are competing in some way or something that forces some type of factorization. But I think the method can potentially be combined with something like that. It's basically tackling the idea of how can we make sense of what's happening right now and reason over large timescales and decide what to put in, into memory and, and what to leave out and, and so on and so forth. The thing is also causality happens over time. It's not like you just have an MLP and then you look at the data and you try to figure out the causes. But if you have sequential data, then you already know that causes always happens before the effect. These causal chains that I'm talking about in the paper where you have these relevant events, it might be that a subset of these paths between relevant events might give rise to causal reasoning of some sort. For people listening, what were the names of the techniques? I think you mentioned Frims or Grims or Scop or something. Frims. Yeah, well, what was the papers that you were mentioning? These are basically papers by Annie Rood and collaborators. So Annie Rood is a guy that also published, is also course on, on my paper. The idea of RIMS and essentially also BRIMS is you have competing modules that are competing for explaining the data that forces some type of specialization. Uh, and factorization on the knowledge and therefore makes it more flexible in out-of-distribution setting. Earlier you mentioned you're really interested in out-of-distribution generalization and modularity and compositionality and that these are very critical to the field. That feels obvious to me, but can you explain what is it that makes these critical? And what do you see that's interesting at the moment? 
I would say probably the number one bottleneck in deep learning is that, I mean, there's a, a series of terms how people to call these effects. So some people say it's spurious correlation. Some people say it's surface learning. There's this clever Hans analogy. There was this story of this German horse. People thought it was like a genius. And the master of the horse showed him a math equation. And the horse was supposed to tap with the left foot whenever it was correct and with the right foot whenever it was incorrect. And everybody was like, wow, this horse is a genius, right? And then later, at some point, the wife of the master did the same thing. It showed also math equations. Suddenly the horse was completely wrong. People were, okay, what is going on? Like we thought this horse would understand mathematics, right? And what was actually happening is that the master, whenever the equation was correct, was actually smiling. And whenever the equation was incorrect, it was not smiling. And then it was actually picking up on whether it was, it was smiling or not. Not actually understanding mathematics. And if you want to talk about intelligence, you want to talk about something where you understand the true mechanisms behind what just seems to correlate in this very instance. And this is the problem in deep learning that it learns the associations that are the easiest to pick up on. In the case of the horse, it's much easier to pick up on the smile rather than understanding the equations. And so that is a little bit what's also going on in deep learning. Deep learning, the model doesn't really know, oh, this is not supposed to be this. It's just coincidence. It learns all these correlations between things and associations between things that are actually supposed to be completely uncorrelated or that they, they, they have nothing to do with one another. They just seem to happen to coincide, uh, statistically speaking, in this setting. But if you would change this, if you would go out of distribution, these two things might not be correlated anymore. The model would break down completely. And that is also why we see that, especially in business, people do not trust deep learning that all that much. They think, oh no, we want to have a model that's interpretable. We can see really what's going on. What we really need is we want to have something that factorizes the knowledge in such a way that we can generalize out of distribution. And we don't have these like spurious correlations happening. You see an x-ray, for instance, and you want to see whether the person has a specific disease. And it happens that all the people that have a disease have been treated before in some way and they have this metal thing and then you see that on the picture and then the, the deep learning algorithm just picks up on the metal thing. You need to put some pressure on the system either by augmenting your data set in some way, but then you can just get rid of the spurious correlations that you know of and that you're aware of. But if there are other things that you don't explicitly see or explicitly know of and that you cannot really interact and you would just have to hope that this would happen. And so another way to practice this is by using inductive biases to pressure the system to factorize knowledge in such a way that it's actually generalizable. The thing that we would need to do in the long term is find the right inductive biases that would pr put pressure on the system to generalize well. We have seen this like for in-distribution generalization, we have this very generic regularizers, oh yeah, L2 loss, L2 regularizer and, and dropout or whatever. They're just very generic. They might work well in, in some instances, but for out of distribution, you need a smarter way to put pressure on the system or, or like better inductive biases. And what inductive biases does the brain use to generalize out of distribution? It seems a lot of neurons are cooperating in some way to, to have this effect. It's believed somehow that this happens through competition of bits of information or neurons. Maybe they're cooperating in some way. And then there's one group that competes against another group. And we also see this when we form sentences that we have like uh, potential sentences that we have in our head that we have an idea that we want to formulate. We have potential sentences. And then we start with one sentence and we realize mid-sentence, oh no, the other formulation was better. And then we start all over again. It's almost like we hold these two things at the same time in our heads. And then we just take the winner. The winner takes it all kind of thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's 
That's really interesting. We observe this at so many different levels, at the sentence level. Yeah. We also observe that sometimes you have warring feelings in your head or voices in your head. Different parts of you want you to do different things. So it does seem like there's some kind of at least multiple kind of predictions are being generated. And then there's something that's choosing between them. There's these words that have multiple meanings. And depending on the context of the sentence, you think almost immediately of the right meaning given the sentence. You hold those potential other meanings also in your mind for like a split second or something like that. And then you just eradicate them from your consciousness instantly because you already know this is the context. So this is something that is very similar in nature to the Brims paper, which is Law Brims. And the title is not called Brims, but the method is called Brims. R-I-M-S. So RIMS would mean recurrent independent module or because they have multiple modules, they call it RIMS. RIMS is like block RIMS, essentially. They have the RIMS, but on, on two layers where the sort of the second layer is modulating the attention on the lower layers. Whenever there's ambiguity in the data, there is a lot of noise or there's potential multiple meanings, then there's a top-down mechanism that's firing, helping the bottom-up perception to go to the right place. In neuroscience, we have this bottom-up perception and you have the top-down is basically what you believe to be true, like the context, uh, the prior beliefs and everything. And then when the bottom-up signal is ambiguous, you auto-complete it with a top-down mechanism. So whenever you have conflicting information from the environment, you tend to auto-complete or make sense of what you believe to be true or given the context. So example, the sentence is the context and we have the ambiguous word that has multiple meanings, but you auto-complete it with what you believe to be true, basically. You can really see the neurons are or the attention mechanism from top down is firing really strongly if you have an ambiguous environment or if you have noisy environment. Something that you can actually see in the model itself. Yeah, I'm actually also really interested in, in continuing working on, on that direction as well. There's a project that I'm working on using this BRIMS method in reinforcement learning and, and, and trying to understand how does this top down attention mechanism, for instance, how does it change over over, over the course of training, how does it correspond to the phases of exploration and exploitation? If it's going to be super useful, I have no idea, but it's just something. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite an interesting formulation of this brain has both top down and bottoms up and like how to mine them together. I think a lot of people think that out of distribution generalization is an important problem, the most important problem in deep learning mm -hmm. and tackling it from different perspectives, but you talked about modularity and compositionality. Mm -hmm. What exactly mean by modularity and compositionality? There's this idea that we want to do out of distribution generalization. Instead of trying to accomplish that directly, we're trying to accomplish modularity in, through an inductive bias first, and then achieve out of distribution generalization. What is modularity? It's breaking down or factorizing knowledge into to different pieces that can be flexibly and dynamically recombined as the input distribution is changing. Let's say you have different entities in your environment and they have dependencies and you would try to factorize the entities with their dependencies in some modules that are sort of like almost independent from one another. So if the setup is slightly changing or the circumstances are shifting, you would still be able to make sense of your environment because you have this meaningful factorization of your environment. So that is like the idea of modularity and how you would achieve this out of distribution generalization. And the question is, what are the right inductive biases or what is the right way to put pressure on the system to achieve that? So the idea is to increase, you have almost too much capacity in deep learning. And then the, the question is, how would you constrain that capacity? It's like in the regularization, you increase the model capacity, but to later on constraining it to give good generalization. 
But here you have this model capacity and you try to restrict it in some meaningful way such that this inductive bias that you're using would put pressure on the system to to factorize and break down, you know, the knowledge into modules or factorize the knowledge in, the, in a way that it, it generalizes out of distribution. There's a lot of inductive biases that people are thinking about. And a thread that always keeps coming up is this idea of competition between several entities or modules. It seems like competition in some sense or another is key to this out of distribution generalization. It's almost like in the economy, because of the competition, you're forced to specialize. That is also going on with modules that are competing for access or that are competing to explain the data. They are forced to specialize in some way and therefore just pick up a very specific part of the environment. And then another module might be almost unrelated and pick up a specific other relationship of the environment. And then so if just one relationship is changing, just this one module would change instead of the whole thing changing. I wouldn't have thought about it in terms of competition before. At least I imagine competition is not the only way that or that you would force specialization. True, although competition seemed like a really great one. I think when I heard you saying some of this stuff before, a lot of the things that I see that kind of make me a little sketched out basically are places where people are adding inductive biases of, oh, now we have a list of entities and relations. It's like, oh, I'm pretty sure we don't have that inside of our brain. It's not that explicit. And so competition is a nice idea because it's a little more generic and it doesn't require us to put these human ideas right. about what in what form of information and really explicit forms into the, the network. There's the global workspace theory that Joshua is really all about. And you can view your subconscious mind as a reservoir of all sorts of information and ideas. And then there's a bottleneck and then there's all these entities that are competing and these coalitions that are being formed between different entities that are competing for this access to conscious model. Imagine you want to infer the cause of something that happened to you, you hold all these different hypotheses in your mind. And as you keep thinking about it and gather more information, eventually one of them is going to win. And then this would simplify your cognitive process in the sense that you wouldn't need to hold all this simultaneous and conflicting information. You can just basically go like this hypothesis wins. And so I can basically make sense of the reality in this way. And, and then you can move forward with your model construction of, of reality, basically information that are making it to the bottleneck, in this case, consciousness, that they get access to, to the entire information. Like on the one side, we have a lot of capacity. And on the other side, we have something that is restricting this capacity. And one potential avenue to, to do that is to enforce some type of competition. There's probably a lot of inductive biases that might help. This is one inductive bias that really fascinates me and I, I want to understand more. It makes me wonder if the bottleneck in humans is consciousness, like is the part of our mind able to express itself? And what is the bottleneck in animal things? I think a lot of people don't give quite enough credit to animals. Why do things behave? Yeah, I don't know. I would expect that to be the same with animals. Animals also are able to do out of distribution generalization, walk around in different environments. If you put a, a dog on a skateboard, he will probably also be able to do some things. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just have no explicit prefrontal cortex. That is definitely a, a big problem. Are there other inductive biases besides the competition that are really fascinating to you or other ways of inducing this, this modularity? There is an interesting paper by Annie Root and Joshua that I think it's called Inductive Biases for High Level Cognition, and they list all sorts of inductive biases. But I think this is the main one. And well, another one is the idea of having a sparse factor graph. You have the encoding of the entities on, on one side and you have the encoding of the relationship between the entities 
almost on a separate side. First, the relationships, there is a sparse amount of relationships that are being encoded. So there is some neuroscience evidence that I think there's also something that happens in the brain. You have the anteroinal cortex that encodes these relationships. And I think the hippocampus then brings the relationships together with the sensory input. And yeah, it seems like brain is doing something similar to encode the relationship almost like, and that's also how abstraction emerges. I think that you have some type of encoding of the relationship that's almost can be repurposed to many different entities. You can think of the abstract idea of like a mother and an aunt or something like that. And it's just a relationship between two entities, or let's say a person X and, it, and it's aunt, but it can be applied to many families, right? It, it's certainly not just tied to yourself and your aunt. It can be repurposed in many different setups. Yeah, I think this is another thing that will definitely help with modularity, let's say out of distribution generalization rather, yeah. Compositionality is this idea that think of one piece of information as being composed of other pieces of information that are units. There is many different ways to encode information, but compositionality is a very narrow subspace of all the ways you can encode information. Just because you could express compositionality in a model doesn't mean that you will or you will end up doing it. Our language is, is built up this way, right? So do we need the right inductive biases to achieve that? How specifically can we implement that and achieve that? What do you think are the most promising approaches to compositionality? Competition, for sure, is one way to achieve it. Having this idea of recurrence or iterative learning, it's allowing information to be processed in a, a very effective way and to be flexible. So flexible to out of distribution, we can achieve out of distribution generalization and we can handle changing environment because the real world is always changing. If you want to have something that is truly intelligent and that is able to flexibly adapt to environments, different environments, then we would need something that breaks down information into sub entities of some sorts that can be flexibly recombined. What is some work that you feel like has impacted you the most? There's an invasion of papers. It's really hard to keep track of everything in terms of what hurts impacted me the most. I, I think the recent papers of the RIMS and BRIMS and, and this idea of modularity, I think it's just really fascinating. I just feel I'm just uh, scratching the surface and there is a lot more to, dis to be discovered. I'm just generally very fascinated by the human brain and especially the subconscious mind and how we, how also humans, we do causal inference in our brain or we process our environments in, in a way that is flexible. Like all these different questions of what the brain is doing is, is just very interesting to me. I read one paper that talks about the different avenues of uh, neuroscience research that can be interesting or it could be applied to AI. That also actually made me think of this memory consolidation aspect. Understanding what is going on in the brain. Right now we are thinking of, okay, what are individual neurons doing? Maybe what we need to ask is, can we describe what a group of neurons is doing in some ways? Mm -hmm. Maybe are there interesting connections to dynamical systems theory? Hopfield wrote a recent paper. I think it was an extension on the Hopfield is all you need, or it was a response to that. I have to dig more into this kind of material to understand more about the connections between deep learning and dynamical systems. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. It's something that you see very rarely in machine learning that people make the effort to really write out the math and be really rigorous about everything. It's mostly a bunch of experiments and then interpretations thereof. And then they just hope that the interpretations are solid enough to make it through the new process. And, and that is 
I really like those papers. It's Sepp Hochheiter's lab, I think. He also wrote a bunch of papers of the same kind. The other one was Rudder. It also like a hundred pages or and then, and I don't think a lot of people are going to read it, but I think they should. Speaking of mathematical foundation to deep learning, it feels like it's the kind of thing that's actually necessary if you, if we really want to, as a field, understand what's going on. Yeah. Versus just papers. It came out in August and there's a lot of people that already build on this and, uh, and there's also a lot to unpack from this paper. So I think taking the time to really go through all the, the math and I think it's also much better to understand one thing in detail rather than understanding a lot of things a little bit in terms of efficiency in, in research. It's, it's much better to stick to one thing and go really deep rather than trying to do a lot of the things at the same time, especially with this explosion of papers, you get easily to just read a lot of papers superficially and just keep a very vague understanding of what's going on rather than trying to pick one thing and go really deep at it. For your mixed research direction that you're working on now, how are you thinking about the math and the experiment for, for the new research directions? Actually, this project that I'm currently working on is more coding focused. For me personally, it's just a good practice because I have a math background and I was never really the guy that was always like in front of his computer coding. So I only coded when I had to, but generally I have not read the 70 pages, but I will definitely finish them at some point and, and try to understand really all the methods and the techniques for the proofs and, and everything, uh, especially because I'm working on something transformer related at the moment. Yeah, I thought it was a really cool exploration of what are transformers and why do they work? That's not how it's built. The self-attention and the memory thing shows the hot field network sort of way of thinking about it and the transformer way of thinking about it are just two sort of different ways of thinking about it. Go, you can actually like use this to express a bunch of other networks as well, a bunch of other techniques as well. This is really like a sort of broader theory of this, which tells you this is why you pick this crazy concept that's in there in transformers for, for this one, some bizarre concept they have in there. And we're like, why did you pick that particular way of normalizing those things? And they kind of explain, oh, it's at kind of the border between these two behaviors and the, uh, and the outfield networks. So it's, oh, okay, yeah, there's a reason for these things. Like, they happened upon empirically, but nice to know why that's there. In mathematics, sometimes gives you some insights that you wouldn't otherwise have through just running your experiments. Especially now that transformers are making such breakthroughs everywhere, I think it's crucial to understand them. 2020 was a year of a series of mini breakthroughs with transformers. I was particularly excited about the AlphaFold 2 breakthrough. Why that? Yeah, I think it just has a lot of implications. It will bring the fields of deep learning and medicine slash genetics closer to each other. And we usually had these convnet architectures that we use for processing protein sequences or DNA. And it seems transformers are making their breakthroughs everywhere in medicine or genetics. It hints towards a deeper thing. So something that might need to understand a bit better about transformers and why they work so well to really investigate because it seems for object recognition, transformers do pretty well as well. It seems like everything is transformers nowadays. So I'm pretty excited about that and, and see where this is going. Do you feel like there's a connection between your neurops work and transformers? And is there sort of some way of applying this idea of selective attention and retention of, of previous things that might be beneficial for some sort of new, even better transformer architecture? Maybe there is connections, but it's in a recurrent network, you apply attention in a very special way, whereas transformers, it's a little bit different. There are some analogies, of course. What I try to do is rather do the opposite of trying to take what I'm doing right now and apply it back to the old idea and see if I extend the old idea with the new idea. 
And what do you mean? Your idea? The new idea is based on the new project that I'm working on since a few months or a few weeks. It's basically a different transformer architecture that also incorporates competition and, and things like that. It's targeted that out of distribution generalization. And the ultimate idea is how can we combine this with a memory module of, of some sort and we enrich recurrent neural networks with this architecture in some way. So a connection, but maybe taking the, the new thing and applying it to the old one rather than the other direction around. It's really fascinating because there's a, a few other papers that came out of our lab at the same time now. They also incorporating more or less the same idea. So it seems to be a timely topic that everybody's so excited about it and it's making such a quick progress. I think it's, there, there is this, I don't know who said this, but I think it was whenever there's a pandemic or, or something where the country is under, where people have nothing else to do, then there, there's scientific breakthroughs happening. And <laughs> a pandemic, a war. Yeah, and at least there is some positives. I have a theory that people talk about how great scientists are great in their 20s and maybe their brain declines or something and they don't do any great work over time. I think it's just really about focus. I have a lot of focus. And so the pandemic and, and things that give people a lot of focus. So this is also something that is super relevant if you're, if you're a researcher or if you want to do deep work is to manage your focus because you can easily get distracted by so many things. I mean, let social media, it's such an attention grabbing mechanism and it's highly addictive and damaging as well. You also have all these papers that pop out everywhere and uh, you can just get distracted with that as well. So having a mechanism that, that keeps you focused on a single goal or a single target is absolutely crucial, I think. Uh, recently, I implemented a strategy where I, I put my phone away for a month and I could see my productivity just increasing. Like I calculated it, it was roughly tenfold. I kept track of the um, number of productive hours during the day. It all started with this moment when I started tracking my productive hours during the day. I was like shocked that I was only two hours or three hours productive during the day. And I was like, this is not good. <laughs> we, we spend so much time on our phone and then it's not only the total amount of time you spend on your phone, but it's also the constant interruption. So even if you're being interrupted for like a few moments, you need time to get back into the deep focus state. Actually, it was pretty hard for me because I had these dopamine responses and these cravings to check my messenger or whatever. And, you know, when it wasn't there anymore, I almost felt like a drug addict of some sort. After I passed 72 hours, then I think it was fine. I want to keep that nice momentum going. Now that I know that I kept track of the number of focused hours, it's really incredible. And not only do I work more, but I also feel less anxiety and stress in general. Instead of just having these 10 different side projects, collaborations here, collaborations there, and doing here a meeting, there a meeting, because I really wanted to make the ICML deadline, it was really forcing me to just have a single target. And I could really see how beneficial that was. We consider all of my entire approach. So having a single target, just working on a single project, because your mind is immersed, you get thoughts about your project, even when you're not working, you're walking around somewhere, you're taking a coffee, you, you constantly, with your subconscious mind, you're constantly on it, you go back home, you implement it, and then you see what the result is, we can reconvene with the group. And if you constantly scatter, you have a little project here, a little project there, it's always like, you always need time to get back into it. And by the time you're back into it, you're already out of it because you need to go to the next project. It's not just that the productivity is divided by the number of projects, but it's actually much more than that. I have a theory that 100 years from now, when we look back and the context switching was way more expensive than we thought it was. And that the optimal type of work week is not you work five days and you have two days of weekend. 
But instead, it's you work 120 hours a week for two weeks at a time, and then you shake a whole week off, <laughs> and then you repeat it. I <laughs> <laughs> like that, yeah. One of our, our mutual friends did a experiment where he did programming for 120 hours for a week, and it was like being high. It was like just so exhilarating, so many new ideas, so productive, got a month and a half's worth of work done, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally believe that. If you're in a deep state of focus, time is not passing in the same way. It's, it feels like even in a minute or two, like you can really accomplish a lot in an hour of focused work. It makes me wonder, what is the analog in neuronets? One day we're going to experience some kind of interesting phenomenon in neuronets where attention switching is more expensive than not attention switching. Like, why? That's so interesting. There is even some neuroscience experiments for visual attention that it was something along the lines of you cannot specialize your attention and at the same time shift your attention. You cannot like move your visual attention at the same time where you try to go deeper onto something. It seems like there's different parts of the brain uh, being activated or something along those lines. I definitely took a lot of inspiration from Cal Newport. One strategy could be that you have periods of intense focus and then you have periods of distraction or whatever, but it's important to not be too scattered and not be having multiple times per day where you check your phone and all these things. There's no way that they're multitasking effectively. You were recording two to three hours of productive time a day. Where did it go to? Quantitatively, I, I don't think it's tenfold per day, but I think in terms of hours, I think it's more along the lines of six or seven hours, but it's maybe not super duper productive six or seven hours, but more maybe four hours super productive. And then the other hours is, is maybe a little bit less productive. Mm. Consistent across every researcher I've talked to, Matt, super productive, focused time for days, four hours. Yeah, exactly. Like it definitely makes sense to have a deep work session somewhere in your day. When I get up, the first thing in the morning is four hours of uninterrupted work and the rest of the day I can have meetings and, and, and things like that. That's exactly our schedule. We're big believers in the, the deep work book. One of our teammates is in. in yeah, our book. teammate Jason Ben is in the Cal Newport <laughs> deep work book as an example. What's his name? Jason Ben. Jason Ben, B-E-N-N. Okay. -N. It seems focus becomes more and more of an asset because of all the, the, the social media, you can see that less and less people are able to just maintain their focus over an extended period of time. And so all the things that you can accomplish only by having focus over extended period of time will become more and more of a, a rare thing and therefore become more valuable. And therefore, if you are able to pull this off, then you will be having almost like a disproportionate advantage. We really care about deep work. My life schedule is the same as yours. Wake up, do deep work for, you know, six or seven hours. Like all my meetings, everything's always in the afternoon. So to the larger deep work thing, we put all of our podcasts on just one day. So that way I'd be like, okay, we'll just do all of like, I'll just do a bunch of podcasts on one day. Watch we'll like change context all the time, right? So everything can be maximized for no, con for low context switching. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Between focus and, and switching the between tasks always comes at a cost and you want to do it as little as possible. Yeah. But one thing you mentioned earlier is, is another thing that I've heard from a lot of researchers, which is read a few papers very mm. deeply. One of my friends, he's one of the founders of quantum computing, the field of quantum computing. When he wanted to understand deep learning as a field, his first thing was to go and try to select a set of papers that he felt were very foundational and then spend a hundred hours on each paper. And so something I was wondering is you mentioned you don't read a lot of papers very broadly. You read a few papers very deeply, very focused on the areas that you're interested in. Yep. Are there any papers that you spent a hundred hours on that you haven't talked about yet? A hundred hours is a lot. I think the proofs there, it takes time and really understanding the complexity and, and the whole 
making a complex proof, bringing it to the point where it's really natural. Like there was a bunch of paper for my master thesis that I read 10 times or something like that. That is definitely very satisfying because you get a better and better understanding. And there, there's something in the, the field of deep learning that makes me really anxious is this constant publishing, you know, paper is new thing and you get this fear of missing out, you know, FOMO just sitting down and saying like, no, I'm just going to focus on this one thing because you always feel like, oh, maybe this becomes redundant after I read this paper or something like that, you know. I heard this many researchers say the same thing that they just picked one aspect or one one topic and they really went really deep. It resulted in immediately three or four papers or something like that. As opposed to you become unattached to like publishing a lot and you go really deep on one thing and, and you really don't care if you publish a lot. And then ironically, you end up publishing a lot. <laughs> You know, after my Europe's deadline, after the summer break, I was essentially trying to go in too many directions at the same time. You know, initially I felt like, oh, I'm going to publish like five papers by the end of the year. And then at the end of the day, I published nothing. I think I just learned my lesson now and pick this one thing and just go all in. Yeah. I have a very visual model of what research is. Some dimensional space with a boundary at the edge. And the boundary is human knowledge, where we are, what humanity knows. And so go really broad, you're kind of like exploring and, and moving in many different directions within the boundary. But if you go really deep, you're going straight at the edge and then very quickly you will hit the edge and then you'll add something and to like it. Like makes a spike and it goes out the side. My internal explanatory model for why going deep produces lots of papers because you hit the edge really quickly yep. and then you start to push the edge outwards. Yeah, yeah. and then it, it just compounds because you have all this deep understanding that few people have and it just repeated over and over again. You can also see this with mathematicians, like initially, when you look at the track record of papers, oftentimes in the very beginning, they just publish around the very same thing. Slight variations, look at it in this way, look at it in this way. And then after they, they got used to the process of, of research more and more, they went a little bit more broad. And you see also the same thing in business. They, you, you pick a point, a starting point, and you go really deep. And then eventually you build, you know, the flower grows. And then after a certain height, it, it goes into the broad, basically. You had another paper, the catastrophic fissure. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that and the story behind that or how you're involved in it or basic idea or any of that. Yeah, I collaborated, but I basically just helped with some mathematical proofs and some ideas. But there's another paper that I, I published as a first author at Europe 2019 that I can talk about, which I find it quite interesting. It's nothing groundbreaking, but it's essentially an extension of orthogonal recurrent neural networks. It's not super interesting at this point in time anymore because we know that Gradient vanishing can be mitigated with self-attention. And initially, its motivation was, okay, can we actually restrict the, the spectrum of the connectivity matrix in the recurrent neural network in such a way that it mitigates the gradient vanishing and it can learn long-term dependencies, perform well on copy task, adding task, and all these long-term dependency tasks. And the idea was initially that people try to constrict the spectrum. And then there were people saying, oh, wait a minute, you're constricting the spectrum, but you're not spanning the entire space of matrices that have a spectrum, uh, an eigenspectrum of one, or of all complex numbers of modulus one. There was a series of papers that were spanning this space more and more until eventually, I think it was this ICML paper by this Oxford PhD student that uses Lie algebras and Lie groups. Instead of directly optimizing on the Lie group, you just view the Lie algebra as a tangent space. The Lie algebra is the tangent space at the identity of the Lie group. And then you do the optimization in the vector space in the Lie algebra as opposed to the Lie group. And then there was also some papers that were talking about whether you can extend even beyond unitary matrices or, or matrices with eigenvectors, eigenvalues, modulus one. 
the natural question is, how can we extend beyond unitary matrices? And there were also some papers there. And the idea that I had was using short decomposition. So short decomposition is a tool that allows you to split up the matrix into a diagonal matrix that gives you access to the spectrum and then a sort of a triangular matrix that is keeping track of the of the interactions between the different eigenmodes. All what we've seen so far, like unitary matrices are normal matrices. So therefore this the second part of the matrix is zero. And we can basically keep everything as is, but just enrich this whole matrix space with these triangular matrices on top and then harness this short decomposition in order to make the matrix space more expressive. And then I so that we can learn these transient dynamics or be able to have these complex, complex computations over short time horizons incorporated in those recurrent neural networks that are able to learn long-term dependencies. I think it was an issue for some of the tasks. So PTB or water tasks where you need to do a complex short-term computations. If you would just look at unitary matrices, it, it would be not so easy to do that. Because all of what those unitary matrices are doing is just keeping things in memory, but not compressing information in any way or not doing any computations that are super complex. It's something that I found very exciting. Yeah. And is there any future work that you want to see done on that? It was my first, first auto paper. So it just got me some momentum and I think it was something cool to think about for a little while, but then I think it's just outdated. I mean. There's transformers for one, and then there's also a self-attention that allows these long-term dependencies to be learned much effectively. We can compress and learn things in a very effective way, but at the same time also have meaningful gradients. And, you know, it's also from a neuroscience perspective or like a cognitive perspective, it also makes more sense to think about it like that. To your point earlier about reading papers that become outdated in this field. It's amazing how fast it happens, right? Like that yeah. was only, what, a year or two ago. It wasn't that long ago, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I stretched it already, like in 2019, I think it was outdated a little bit. I was reviewing a bunch of papers from Europe's 2020, and it was a lot of people still trying to do papers in this direction. And you easily get outdated in the year or two by just other methods. Are there any lessons you feel like you learned from either, either that paper or the most recent Nerves paper? So the way I did research in the beginning was just like, I had no clue of what the review process looks like. So getting accustomed to all of this and making sure that your paper actually fits on eight pages and getting the right kinds of experiments and, and things like that. And also starting with the right experiments, because imagine you have an inductive bias that you want to build into, or you want to highlight your work. One good strategy is to start with very simple toy tasks work on one toy task and then another toy task, as opposed to trying to immediately get it to work on a more complex task, because you might spend a lot of time and then you figure out after a really long time, you might figure out why it doesn't work. And then you might've just given up by then, or it reminds me of these math Olympiad problems from back in the days when I was in high school. Let's say you want to prove something for all N. There's sometimes N is a million or a thousand or something like that. And it's very hard to see the structure. It's very hard to grasp the essence of what is really going on in these large cases or in these complex cases. Let's say these small, non-trivial cases, once you get it working there, then you suddenly see some nugget or some idea or some structure, and then you can start to extrapolate this to more complex tasks. So I think having a set of really good toy tasks, especially for things like out-of-distribution generalization nowadays is very crucial. If you want to incorporate an inductive bias on that end, it might be good to have some really, really simple tasks. It might be also good to some type of reverse engineering. Say that you want your model to do a certain thing. 
And then you purposefully construct a task where you already know what the answer is. And then you make sure that the model actually recovers that. If you want to learn a relationship between different entities, you might do this Polish calculator or something like that, where you have this plus and the multiplication. There's all these different ways where you start with super simple cases and then reverse engineer it, as opposed to having a, a very complex, I don't know, reinforcement problem that you're trying to get state of the art right away and you just spend a lot of time building on the wrong foundation. The math Olympiad analogy is a great analogy. Yeah. Because yeah. this idea of start with simple problems, something actually we've heard from a lot of researchers in the podcast series, everyone discovers it for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's for me, I think it was rather late that I discovered it. <laughs> Better late than never, yeah. You mentioned out-of-domain work and, and generalization. Do you feel like there are good problems or tasks or simple tasks or good benchmarks in that realm already? Yeah, there have been a series of papers that came out that presented a bunch of tasks. I think there was a paper by coming from Stanford. They had like some OD benchmarks. And also inside Mila, we have people that work on this quite a lot. And they and we kind of forward to each other like some toy tasks that are useful. And so I'm currently building on those. So I'm building on those, but it definitely like the, the field is in need for a good series of tasks for sure. Yeah. Are there any other things that you think would be really useful for the field or, or places where you think, oh, I wish that I could change X about the field? Like it seems like the ultimate metric for measuring success in the field is, oh, how many papers did you have and things like that. This automatically forces you to go into this like rat race of constantly trying to publish something as opposed to taking the time and going really deep. It's very tempting, especially if you're in a lab that is very productive. There's a lot of collaborations and potential papers that you can be collaborating on that, you know, it's very tempting to just say yes. And or later then you will realize that you're, you just spread yourself too thinly and then you don't actually accomplish so much. I'm excited to see what comes out of it. Me too. I, I, yeah. I, I love that strategy. I, I think uh, we might adopt something very similar to that as well. And I would love to see more people adopt that. I, the Hopfield Network paper, right? I want one-tenth the number of papers and all of them to be that quality. Yeah. What is also great about papers like these is that it's a joint effort of a lot of folks. If you have this mindset of, oh yeah, I'm the first author. I don't want to share my research for, with too many people. Like on my current projects, there's five students and I think four profs or something like that. Who cares in the end whether people are going to think of, oh yeah, who did this work? This is too many students on the paper and whatever. Did you publish something that you're proud of or did you do something that make the advance or not? Yeah, that seems like a much better metric. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered? Generally, I'm also very interested in psychology and the subconscious mind. Beside the applications to genetics and health in general, I think mental health is something that I'm, I'm really interested in because there seems to, it seems to be like such a fuzzy domain where it's not really clear what's helping and what's not helping. And there's a bit of research, but then again, it's like so many people are having a depression or anxiety or whatever, and then they go to some psychiatrists and then they, they get some pills or they, they just spend a lot of money on the therapist. Maybe AI is able to, with like some centralized data or something like that, and maybe eventually we'll be able to systematize this more or make this more effective. I've been developing a bunch of models for, like, for, for psychology using neural nets as inspiration mm -hmm. and the interesting thing about the field of psychology, psychiatry is that it's basically impossible to examine the physical substrate. In most fields, mm. you can like 
understand at least the physical behaviors that are going on molecular level. But in psychology, you can't do that for depression. Interesting thing about neuronets is that we do have this kind of physical substrate that we can work with these architectures and that they maybe are able to give us better models for depression and anxiety. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. In society, this is almost like an open problem or something like that, you know? The same way we have lectures in mathematics and open problems in AI, this is also an open problem. Yeah. I have a theory right now that a lot of the issues with this field, we only have symptoms. We don't have any explanatory models yep. um, for why things are happening. And the, yep. we can only address these symptoms. But I've done a bunch of therapy. And so now the question is, how do we turn them into much more rigorous, almost mathematically rigorous yep. models for why they cause all of these symptoms? It seems like there's a sparse set of causes that drive mental health. It's like a very tiny subset of all the potential, just counteracting it with positive thinking and all this. Like, did it ever really sustainably work? From the limited knowledge that I have, I feel like it's it's a mix between environmental factors, beliefs, and unresolved emotions. You can almost describe that as a state. And then given the state, what do you do? My current model is that actually unresolved emotions come from beliefs, some of the beliefs that you don't understand or you can't really access very well, but that those basically like beliefs are like these mini neural nets in our brains, there's a lot of them, and they're producing all of these predictions. Yep. And some of the predict predictions are really negative. Yep. And so as a result, we have this emotion of fear that appears. Yep. Like, well, wow, there's a really negative prediction. And other times, you know, they produce normal predictions, fine predictions. And when we're young, we form a lot of these beliefs. Yeah, default assumptions about the world that we're having that might not actually be true. And then, yeah, and it become oftentimes become self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah, that's right. Why are they self-fulfilling prophecies? It's because if you have a belief and it makes a prediction and it predicts failure, then you will not take action because it predicts failure. They're kind of like an obvious chain of why narratives are self-fulfilling. A lot of trauma comes from childhood and seems like young child's brain trauma is almost overfitting to a particular situation. You have one thing that impacts you. And it was not even that big of a deal, but somehow you interpreted this crazy belief system out of it. And when you grow older, it, this seems to happen a little bit less. Children have some kind of weird overfitting response. And then a lot of those kind of overfit responses get carried into adulthood. And then one methodology in therapy that works very well, actually, is pulling up those childhood beliefs and showing them more data. Mm -hmm. So showing them what's happening in your life right now. And so I almost think of this as, oh, what you want to do is pull up your childhood models that have formed and give it more data in order to allow it to generalize. And so then it's not so overfit and it can make better predictions. I was reading this book on memory reconsolidation. And if you have some trauma from the past to actually relive the emotion in some way, think your way out of the thing, because it seems there is some stuff stored in the emotional brain, in the limbic brain. You build like a wall around it of some sort because it... You don't want to feel it on a constant basis because it just uh, messes with your productivity and, and your well-functioning in a day-to-day -day basis. You, you first need to understand where it's actually sitting because a lot of the times the biggest bottleneck to healing is that a lot of these emotional issues slash beliefs are unconscious. The thing that controls you the most is the thing that you don't know you don't know. Like it's, once it comes into your awareness, you're halfway there basically. Ultimately, we want to optimize for happiness, right? We want to optimize for your, our human experience. And I think the most causal elements for that human experience is precisely those trapped emotions and beliefs. And once you think it through, it, it's a fundamental thing. And maybe it's because people are not aware of it or they're not conscious enough of it. I don't know. 
to your point earlier, we can do experiments in animal models, although animal models don't exactly transfer. But there was a really good oral or uh, sorry, spotlight. No, invited talk at Neurops last year. One of the one of the main presentations was about this guy about mouse depression, basically. And it, very much confirming what you guys are saying. Like as little infant, the little baby mice, they were like subject to a lot of stress. Whether they took the mouse after the stress and put it back with its mother or put it somewhere else, <laughs> it developed depression or not much later in its life when it was again subject to stress. Our mechanisms for experimentation are difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think that right now is develop theory. And then I'm very much in the middle of this right now. But two experimental approaches. One is maybe you can actually learn some things from deep neural networks. But another one is to use the existing psychological experimental tools. People self-report. No, absolutely. And I think another avenue might be that you just take yourself as an experiment works on yourself because you have the most data about yourself. All of my explanatory models are from me doing a ton of therapy on myself and understanding, oh, actually changing your beliefs and rewriting your narratives completely determines your outlook on life. Rewriting my old emotional responses and understanding where they came from and helping them generalize better, like they completely changed. There was this one guy that had really severe social anxiety and it seems he had a really rough childhood and he stumbled upon this one book called Homecoming by John Bradshaw and he just this inner child work, getting rid of the childhood trauma and, and everything. And it was super painful. And he had to almost disappear for three months and where he did all the exercise in there. And when he came back, he was almost like a newborn person. I was, wow, this is a crazy transformation that you just did. Some people would really crazy breakthrough with this and other people had, it, it almost didn't do, do anything. And it seems like you're given blueprints, given the sets of beliefs, given the set of emotional trauma slash schemata or whatever, how you call it. You need to do breath work, you need to do hypnotherapy, journaling or, or inner child work, and then this is your way out. If you had a recommender system, this on your phone or something that gathers all, that would be absolutely amazing. There are different techniques that will work really amazingly well for certain people. And so the danger with using your own self as an experimentation tool is back to the exact same problem, overfitting. It works really well for me, and it might even work really well for other people that are very similar to you. But you probably do need this big suite of tools, and there might be other really good ones that are out there too, but... If people could just get access to the top 10 or something, that probably would be pretty great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. And not that I disagree with you need a lot of tools. I think having a lot of tools is good, but also that there's, it's not just, there is an explanatory model for why certain tools work on certain people and other tools don't. That model is what's important to understand. Looking at this book by John Bradshaw and a bunch of other psychology books, what I, what I saw oftentimes is they have is like a bunch of quizzes in the beginning of the book to allocate you to the right chapter. They give you a sentence and then you have to score, oh, it's rather true or rather not true, or this is false or this is true. And if you had like a database of hand-picked question at internal representation, and depending on what you've clicked, let's say you have a quiz that's dynamically adjusting to you, and you would get a series of statements and you just click yes or no. And then depending on what you've clicked on in the past, you would get a statement that would be the most informative about your internal state. Within maybe a hundred statements, you will get a very precise profile of what this person's set of beliefs is, where he's stuck emotionally, and then maybe use that as a descriptive state of, of what this person's starting point is. And then, you know, that, that, that might be a way to encode it because I, I don't see otherwise how you would gather this information, right? So, That's, That's really yeah. interesting as an encoding idea. I was thinking about doing something like that, but then I was like, ah, I got to publish, I got to publish. <laughs> Which field? Were you just saying if you don't need to publish yet? I guess you're in the middle of your PhD. There's just something very important here. If my life's work is to figure out how to enable people to be happier, this is, it seems that there's something very worthwhile. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy math. I enjoy coding and, and, and things like that. But like, this is in terms of meaning. 
the meaning component is not always there in the very super theoretical work. It's going on an intellectual level, but it's not necessarily on a human level. Mostly in machine learning or AI, it's you publish some stuff and then it stays in the journals and then you move on to the next thing and then, and maybe it's fun, but having that meaningful impact on where you really directly see and yeah, I even was thinking about, ah, oh, should I study psychology from scratch? And I was like, ah, oh, I'm like 31 now and <laughs> going back to school, it's like, there might just be a way to combine both things without having to study everything from scratch. I don't think you need to study psychology scratch. Yeah. I feel like I've gotten really far without doing that. <laughs> yeah, actually, also because a lot of the knowledge you get at university oftentimes is not the most practical knowledge, right? When I look at the most useful tools that I develop on myself, I'm thinking hypnotherapy, I'm thinking breath work. Do you, do you really learn this at university? I don't think so. Exactly. This is the much more practical stuff that will give you a much better sense of the actual causal factors. And then they're in the, they're hard to do experiments on, on those things. And I think that because it's not scientifically validated in this traditional sense, and that's why we don't really know whether this works, this is just hocus pocus. But then at the end of the day, people that are experienced with this kind of knowledge, they know what works. I'd much rather listen to someone who has solved their own problems than some researcher that, that does uh, theoretical work on psychology. Have you ever been part of a research group or lab that you felt was particularly effective? One of the things you mentioned is that, Emila, you guys have internal toy problems that you were sending back and forth. And that struck me as a like interesting example. Maybe that's part of what helps some people at Mila be so productive and so effective. Are there other things that you've seen or have you ever been part of a group that you felt was really effective? So I think that the most effective research environment I've been part of is definitely Mila. Maybe I've given the wrong impression that Mila is highly organized, where we all have a list of toy experiments that we send around. It's, I mean, it's just almost by coincidence that I know about this because I know this one person. It's a lot of different groups that are almost independent from one another that some people, they're very social. They know a lot of other people. They get involved in a lot of projects. They know a lot of things. And some people, maybe then they don't go to other people so easily to talk to them. And so they might be more isolated and doing things on their own. So it's a giant lab and information doesn't necessarily always flow everywhere in the same way. It gives you a lot of freedom to lore. You're not always under pressure to publish and perform, but at the same time, it, it puts just about the right amount of pressure. It's almost like regularization. It's like you have these specific things that you need to accomplish in your PhD. You have these courses, you have these presentations, mini teasers that you need to do before, I think, the end of the second year. And then you need to publish, I think, three papers or something like that, or at least that's a sufficient condition to graduate. There's a lot of bright minds. You have a lot of professors with different knowledge. You have people from all walks of life, neuroscience people, computer science professors that have all sorts of different backgrounds, mathematicians. You have postdocs coming from physics. It's a very sort of a rich environment where you can just easily collaborate and it's just effortless. I would assume that in smaller research labs, it might not be so easy to be always on the up to date on the latest trends, because I feel like the lab is so big that we have reading groups for every single topic out there, subfield. There is a reading group just doing neuro AI. There's a reading group just doing meta learning. There's a reading group just doing deep learning theory. And so whenever you about something specific, you just go to this social group and then you just connect with a bunch of people and you, you get someone on board that can help you out. And it's also in terms of pre-corona, we moved out of university, we merged with the McGill lab. It's very close in proximity to like other industry, Element AI, I think Facebook research is also in the building. It's like an open space. You don't necessarily have any separate rooms except for professors and everybody just walks around and 
you have this gigantic kitchen in the middle that people talk to each other and also see that people are very interested in topics that are not only touching AI, but also economics. Like we even have a group on mental health, on meditation and yoga. Like it's just an exchange of ideas and, and that makes it very effective, I think. How do you get pulled into a collaboration? I never really thought about it. It always came natural to me. And uh, people <laughs> ask me like, oh, how do you find the people to collaborate with all the time? Okay, so I think one strategy that I use is when I see an interesting paper that comes out of Mila, then I will see who is the first author and then I'll, I'll write to this person on Slack and just to have a chat or something like that. Because if I see that it might be an idea that you can combine with something that I've done or it touches on some of my interests, so I, I'll just reach out and we have a we have an informal chat. And if we have a good vibe going, then we, we can keep chatting and then eventually something happens or nothing. Uh, there's a danger of having too many different projects and too many collaborators where we have this, this adverse effect of having being too scattered. And, and that also definitely happened to me. It's like saying yes to everything and then also not wanting to let anybody down and things like that. Having a lot of collaborations is not always necessarily positive. You also need to focus. It's finding that right balance. I'm really happy that we found a really nice group that has very complementary skills on the project that I'm working on right now. It has a really good momentum and I'm really happy about it. Great. Yeah, well, it's been a really good conversation. I, I've learned a lot. I took a bunch of notes, a bunch of cool ideas as we were talking. So thanks so much for, for going through everything. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, well, I hope I, I could uh, offer some interesting insights. Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kenjun, K-A-N-J-U-N. And our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time, 